0: Hello, this is Mike, previously known as Spartan. And this is Sam, previously known as Walla. Please be advised that after episode 10, Knight is no longer with the show. We have chosen to keep the episodes in which they co-hosted intact for continuity and to make as many episodes as possible available to the listeners. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Hardtack episode 8, Cryptology, Operation Magic. I am your host Spartan. Unfortunately, Knight and Walla will not be joining us for this episode. Luckily for all of us, they will return next week for episode 9, which I will tell you a bit more about later. With that in mind, this episode will be shorter than usual. Try not to celebrate too much. Let's get to it. Hardtack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the participants alone. Now, put on your Kevlar, secure your lookies and chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Heart Tack. I'm going to mix up the format just a bit and say here that if you would like to continue or add to the discussion from this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can do so on the Historical Studies Military Discord, as well as the Hardtack Podcast Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. All can be found through our link tree listed in the episode description, or you can just search Hardtack Pod, that's one word, on any of those platforms and you'll find us there. You may also email us at hsmilitaryhistory at gmail.com with any comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes. Please also take the time to leave us a review, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. All right, let's start off with a question. What is cryptology? The term cryptology covers both cryptography and cryptanalysis. Cryptography is the process of rendering plain text and comprehensible through encoding. Cryptanalysis, on the other hand, is the study of cryptosystems and the reconversion of crypts into plain text, undoing the work done in cryptography, basically. Cryptography and cryptanalysis together compose the inexact science that is cryptology. No shame if you need to revisit that last bit. I had to read it and rewrite it a few times for clarity's sake. For this episode, a large portion of the research came from one book in particular. It's called The Broken Seal. Operation Magic and the Secret Road to Pearl Harbor, written by Ladislaus Farrago. Farago served in the Office of U.S. Naval Intelligence as Chief of Research and Planning, Special Warfare Branch, during World War II. This book, for context, was published in 1967, so just over 20 years after World War II concluded. I was lucky enough to find a great first edition hardback copy, uh, for very little money, honestly. I highly recommend this book to those interested. You can find it on Thriftbooks as well as Amazon. It is not near as dry as you might think. The author actually does a really great job of using descriptive narrative storytelling to keep it interesting. Given the topic here, there may be some question among listeners, as there was for me during the research process, about the origins of American cryptology. So let's start there. American cryptology really found some initial permanence and recognition as a vital part of U.S. military operations during World War I, thanks to the efforts of one man in particular. Herbert O. Yardley was born April 13, 1889, in Worthington, Indiana, and learned to use the telegraph at an early age. His father worked at a railroad, and the young Herbert would one day do the same as a telegrapher. But Yardley became masterful at Morse code, and in 1912 he passed the civil service exam and was hired as a government telegrapher and code clerk in the U.S. State Department and a probationary status. It was during this time, specifically working night shifts, that Yardley began deciphering encrypted diplomatic codes that passed through his department. I guess during his downtime and his boredom hours, Yardley was so proficient that he successfully broke the nation's most private and supposedly secure codes between the president and other foreign entities. After taking this finding to his supervisor in the form of a 100-page essay that shattered any belief in the security of American cryptography, Yardley joined the United States Army, received a commission, and was assigned to the Signal Corps during World War I. As a new lieutenant, he was actually placed in charge of MI-8. MI-8 was a section of military intelligence that did not exist prior to his commission, and it was actually his proposal for a cryptology division that it came into being with him as the head of it. Yardley served well in World War I and did well to advance the science of cryptology for the American military. However, not all of Yardley's efforts were a success, and he found himself fighting quite a bit of skepticism. In his book, uh, Farrago actually details an incident that Yardley was involved in early on that put a bitter taste in his mouth. Quote, "...forever producing breathless scoops from his flotsam of broken codes... Yardley once claimed that, in a telegram he had decoded, he had discovered a plot to poison President Wilson. He traced the plot not to the Germans bitter in defeat after World War I, but to the French and British secret services. When he took his discovery to his diplomatic liaison man, he was admonished to be careful with such, quote, reckless charges. Yardley never forgot or forgave the rebuff and was convinced to the end of his days that Wilson's debilitating illness, which made him... A shadow president during his second term had had its origins and the allied poison plot no one but he was willing to take seriously. End quote "So that's a pretty wild claim and deserving of skepticism, but it's interesting to consider the possibility. As World War I concluded, MI8 and wartime intelligence moved to the back burner, and Yardley returned to the. US only to discover that MI8 was slated for erasure. From the government's perspective, there was no real need for MI8. All of this culminated into a deal struck between Yardley's previous employer, if we remember that was the U.S. Department of State, and the remnants of MI8, the result of which was the now-famous Black Chamber in New York. So what was the Black Chamber? In short, it was the Cypher Bureau, and America's first peacetime cryptology organization, and the forerunner to our modern National Security Agency, or the boogeyman, the NSA. Yardley lived quite comfortably in New York on a salary of $7,500 a year, married one of his secretaries, of course, and spent his free time drinking heavily and gambling. So, pretty standard government job, I suppose you could say. That just about does it for the background of American cryptology, bare bones as it was, and how it took shape, and we can leave it there and move into the episode's topic. Specifically, how cryptology affected American and Japanese relations in the interwar years, and how it impacted World War II, at least in the beginning. On the topic of American and Japanese relations, the earliest attempts at decrypting Japanese ciphers began before World War I. Japanese codes, first designated as red during World War I, and later as blue during the interwar years, more so in the 30s, They were decrypted by Yardley and his team rather quickly, over in the black chamber. But there was some difficulty in the task. Yardley could not speak or read Japanese. However, he was able to identify patterns in the code. During his endeavors, he deduced that the Japanese code system relied on two-letter elements, as opposed to one-letter elements, as is common in English. This tracks with Japanese kana. The Japanese language system contains four sets of kana, if you count Romaji and the language systems are built on a series of 71 two-letter syllables, or kana characters. Though unable to read Japanese, Yardley was able to figure this out, and through the use of Japanese newspapers, he broke the first Japanese codes. Essentially, what Yardley did was he looked for patterns in their diplomatic ciphers that contained repeating two-letter elements, as we talked about the kana, and that were also of the same length as headlines in Japanese newspapers. It made sense to Yardley that the headlines of Japanese newspapers would cover international events relevant to Japan and would therefore be the same subjects of the encrypted diplomatic messages, so we could look for patterns that, for patterns that existed between the two. The Black Chamber's efforts paid off. Intercepted diplomatic messages contained valuable intelligence on what Japan found to be acceptable arms limitations following World War I. This is going into the Washington Naval Conference of 1921 to 1922, which basically was a gathering of the world's largest naval powers in D.C., where they discussed naval disarmament and ways to relieve growing tensions in East Asia. From history.state.gov, in the wake of World War I, leaders in the international community sought to prevent the possibility of another war. Again, remember, World War I was supposed to be the war to end all wars. Rising Japanese militarism and an international arms race heightened these concerns. As a result, policymakers worked to reduce the rising threat. Senator William E. Bora, a Republican from Idaho, led a congressional effort to demand that the United States engage its two principal competitors in the naval arms race, Japan and the United Kingdom, and negotiations for disarmament. End quote. So three major treaties came out of this conference, which were intended to prevent war, but really to curb Japanese power in East Asia and protect Western interests in the region. As American and Japanese relations deteriorated in the interwar years between World Wars I and II, the treaties were all but forgotten, and both powers, along with Great Britain, competed in dramatic naval rearmament. Yardley was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal in 1923 for, quote, his efforts in the World War, end quote. As the citation read, though he was actually receiving the award for his efforts with the Black Chamber and their successful breaking of Japanese codes in time for the Washington Naval Conference, this of course could not be advertised even to some of the highest-ranking individuals in Washington. In the years that followed, there were some additions and subtractions to American cryptology efforts all the way into the 30s by both the United States Army and the Navy. However, cryptology continued to receive backburner treatment. The budgets were small, staffing was minimal, and credit for the efforts of cryptanalysts uh, lacked any ceremony. The Army had its Signal Intelligence Section of the Signal Corps, hereby referred to as the SIS, and the Navy had its own version called the Communications Security Section in the Office of Naval Communications, which, in shorthand, was designated OP-20G, which is much easier to say. Farrago described both of these entities as, quote, kept barely alive, but change was on the horizon for the field of cryptology. This brings us into Operation Magic in its earliest stages. The United States Navy and the Army had enjoyed the efforts and legacy of the Black Chamber and had been reading Japanese diplomatic messages regularly by the late 1930s. Japan had continued to use both red and blue encryption systems, though all signs indicated that the codes had been broken. However, Navy Captain Lawrence F. Safford, he was deemed the father of U.S. Navy cryptology, uh, and one of the leaders in OP-20G, noticed a change in Japanese telegrams in 1938. There were two notable changes. The first were that the messages were much more sophisticated and indicated that Japan was using a new code system produced by a new and unknown cipher machine, which his department initially designated the type number 97 machine. The second difference was that the information and the new messages his team was able to decipher were much more sensitive than those found in the previous red and blue systems. His team had limited success, and he knew they needed help, so Safford did the unthinkable. He reached out to his counterpart and friend and the Army's SIS, an individual by the name of Colonel William Friedman. He reached out specifically because Friedman specialized in machine based systems. At first, and then after informally discussing together this new top secret project, Safford then received permission from Navy leaders to begin a joint Army Navy venture into the new code, which they designated PURPLE. For those that are curious or have already figured it out, the name PURPLE came from red and blue which, when mixed together, make purple. And the purple code had indications that it used variables from both the previous red and blue. So there you go. Military innovation. Stunning creativity. The breaking of code designation purple was made possible by a couple of factors. First, the Japanese used the new code system to send repeated messages that had been used in the previous two codes, and this proved to be a critical error. The Japanese code designated red was earlier broken after a U.S. Navy officer obtained a stolen copy of a Japanese secret codebook. The codebook was turned over to cryptanalysts, decrypted and filed away, specifically in red folders, which is why it was called red. Later in 1930, the Japanese began using a code that was designated as blue, which was broken in 1932, just two years after it was put into use. Japan continued to use red for more unclassified communication, however. The second factor that really led to the breaking of Code Purple was the joint service cooperation that was first displayed by Safford. As we learned earlier, budgets were practically non-existent for the OP-20G and SIS missions, and Friedman's group initially received zero financial support from the United States Army Signal Corps towards breaking Purple. How they got around this was that the Navy financed the SIS's efforts. Safford had all-known intercepts, solutions for the cipher to date, and technical details of the red code machine transferred to the sis which was ordered to quote discontinue everything it was doing and devote all its resources to the solution of the new japanese cipher and reconstruction of the new machine end quote colonel friedman here is uh, quite the hero he really devoted himself in full to the task of breaking the new system his story is a bit of a tragic one but it gives you an idea of the kind of man that he was. With a group of only 20 personnel, Friedman and company had reconstructed what was estimated to be about 25% of the new machine within the first three weeks. From Farago's book, The Broken Seal, the work progressed fitfully from crisis to crisis. The strain became errant for most and almost unbearable for Friedman. The effort was so frustrating that several times he was on the verge of giving up the struggle. He pushed himself to the brink of exhaustion in both body and spirit only with the reckless exertion of the last ounce of his physical energy and mental strength did he manage to stay with the job, end quote. So there you have a bit of an idea of what Friedman and his team were going through. And this was not a short-lived experience. 18 months later, reconstruction had not progressed. It was still at 25% approximately. Though there was some success in unscrambling bits of the cipher specific to Japanese linguistic and idiomatic language details, but nothing more than that. In August of 1940, the first major breakthrough arrived when a young cryptologist named Harry Lawrence Clark suggested that the mechanical process of encryption was what Friedman's team had gotten wrong. Now, I don't personally understand the mechanics of the encryption machine, uh, the type number 97, but Clark suggested that the machine encrypted messages using stepping switches instead of disks. What does that mean? Well, according to the Google machine, stepping switches are an electrical control engineering, A stepping switch or stepping relay, also known as a uniselector, is an electromechanical device that switches an input signal strength to one of several possible output paths directed by a train of electrical pulses. This is well outside of my wheelhouse, but from what I could gather here, the stepping switches enable the random selection of an output path as stated, or in this case, a cipher combination, to increase the sophistication of the encryption process and increase the randomization of the encryption. So the team got to work with the Syrian minds and had progressed in decryption of the new Japanese code just 2 days later. So what we what we learned from that is that Harry Clark was correct. The project progressed with great speed from that moment forward. A cyclical pattern in the purple code was first identified on September 20th, 1940, just a month later by a 27-year-old mathematician and cryptanalyst named Genevieve Gratian. Gratian later was enlisted in decrypting KGB messages during the Cold War. She didn't die until 2006 in Fairfax, Virginia, after serving as a doctor of the mathematics department at George Mason University. She was 93 years old. Take some time to read about her. She's a total badass. Five days later, on the 25th of September, the first message from Purple was decrypted. Farrago calls the efforts at breaking the Purple machine "quote the most remarkable episode in the history of American cryptology." End quote. Sadly, Friedman was unable to celebrate the hard-earned victory with his team. He collapsed from stress and was hospitalized for several months, suffering a nervous breakdown. The man nearly worked himself to death. Of note, Japanese cryptologists refused to believe that Friedman and his team broke the code. At the time of the Broken Seals publication in 1967, Braga wrote, quote, to this day, Japanese cryptologists refuse to concede that their American colleagues solved the code by actually reproducing the B unit, that being the purple machine, from telltale clues gained through pure cryptanalysis. According to Noboru Kojima, it is assumed in Japan that a machine was stolen either by an official of the Japanese embassy in Washington or by a British intelligence agent from a Japanese diplomatic mission in a neutral country. And the opinion of Japanese code experts. The kind of ingenuity Friedman and his associates claim to have had simply does not exist. Extremely negative outlook, and I think it also um, really undercuts the the work and the effort that, that Friedman and his team put in. The success of the operation was reported to the highest echelons of leadership within the Navy and the Army. The name Magic was selected as a cover name for the operation, which now involved all of Japan's diplomatic systems. So purple, red, and other various naval codes all fell under this new name of magic. From Farrago's book, quote, the term was also designed as a security classification, higher than top secret. In the quaint vernacular of the project, the handful of people cleared for magic were called ultras, end quote. And if you have any study of American and British cryptology or have seen any movies specific to Bletchley Park and the Breaking of the Enigma Machine, you're probably familiar with the term Ultra. Uh, this is where it came from was operation magic the germans warned the japanese that purple had been broken however in keeping with japanese ideals of assumed superiority they refused to accept this as possible at the time and of course as we learned from farrago's book they later denied that it was the efforts of human beings at all that they had somehow stolen a machine so there's a lot of denial happening from the japanese perspective Although Operation Magic's primary mission was the decryption and analysis of Japanese diplomatic signals between 1941 and 1945, the operation came to encompass decryption and analysis of military signals. This happened after Pearl Harbor. The organizations responsible for the decryption and analysis of these messages continued to be the United States Army's SIS, along with the Navy's OP-20G. The operation remained joint, and the cooperation of these two organizations was referred to as the Research Bureau. By the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor over a year later, on December 7th, 1941, the research bureau had built eight purple and five red machines for interception and decryption of diplomatic messages. In contrast, Japan had 25 purple machines and 40 red machines. The availability of the machines ensured the steady flow of information specific to Japanese diplomatic messages. And actually, American code clerks became so proficient they were actually decrypting Japanese messages faster than... The Japanese could in some cases. So Pearl Harbor was mentioned, and the book I have referenced specifically mentions Pearl Harbor in the title. So I wanted to briefly address some of the speculation and conspiracies surrounding the attack. It has been claimed that the United States had knowledge of the attack on Pearl Harbor prior to the event, that it was allowed to happen in order to justify America's entry into World War II, among other bits of speculation. It is true that Colonel Friedman and his team were successful in decrypting Purple prior to the attack on Pearl Harbor. However, the Imperial Japanese Navy was not using the Purple Encryption System prior to or after the attack, but rather they used code J N twenty five, that being Japanese Naval Code uh, with the designator twenty five, to communicate the details and plan of attack. The Imperial Navy had actually changed the J N twenty five code system on november first, just over a month before Pearl Harbor picking up. Safford and his crew were aware of the change to JN-25 the same day that it occurred, and they dedicated countless hours in the month before Pearl Harbor to breaking the new code, but they actually only managed to decipher about 10% of the new system. The results were, of course, a successful Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. The Research Bureau was unable to detect any communications prior to the attack on Pearl Harbor that fell into the category of purple Colonel Friedman wrote, as did many other conspiracy theorists, although much is exaggerated speculation from the latter, detailed analysis on the attack at Pearl Harbor and whether the possibility of knowledge prior to the attack could have mitigated the success of the Japanese surprise attack or prevented it entirely. Colonel Friedman was of the mind that prior knowledge of the attack had not been gained through Operation Magic. In a document written by Friedman to the director of the NSA, Friedman stated, quote, It is to be noted and indeed emphasized before going into this phase of the subject that at the time of the attack, the only cryptographic systems which the U.S. cryptoanalytic agencies had solved and were able to read were not the Japanese military or naval systems. They were only the systems used by the foreign office, end quote. So here, this is in line with what we stated earlier about the earliest attempts at breaking Japanese code being solely for the purpose of decrypting diplomatic messages, which would have not encompassed JN-25 and the communications used to detail and coordinate the attack on Pearl Harbor. A large part of the later success in breaking JN-25 in 1942, so a year later, is owed to Japan's penchant for official and specific phrases within their communications. Many messages begin with repeating phrases like, I have the honor to inform your excellency, and other flowery lines of the sort. Japanese tradition bit them in the ass. The combination of repeat phrases, names of commanders, locations, and titles coupled with their habit of altering the code in three to six months time frames gave the Research Bureau the timing, the patterns, and the information required to break the code. Unfortunately, that did not happen before December 7th of 1941. Putting the decrypted codes to use proved invaluable to the Allied powers, and the path to American naval dominance in the Pacific was a direct result of Operation Magic. Having researched the operation both in text and through some really great archived video footage, it's obvious that the engagements in the Pacific between the United States and the Japanese during World War II would have played out quite a bit differently without the intel gained through the Research Bureau and Operation Magic. Operation Magic and American cryptology were essential to Allied victory in World War II. The breaking of purple also improved U.S.-British relations and led to greater cooperation and cryptanalysis efforts between the two nations specifically to Bletchley Park and the later breaking of the German Enigma machine, which perhaps is the greatest result of that cooperation. A purple machine was actually given to the good people at Bletchley Park as a show of faith and cooperation between the two powers, which we know now was essential to Allied victory. Well, that'll do it for Episode 8. Similar to Episode 6, The Soviet-Chinese Spy Wars, the topic of cryptology is convoluted. It deals with a lot of military intelligence, and it's not an exact science. It's an interesting topic, but it can be really dry in the details, and I understand that. I think I was able to write an episode for everyone that was both informative, but somewhat entertaining on a very underappreciated study. Thanks for sticking out this short solo episode with me, folks. I know that listening to me drone for half an hour can be difficult for some. I do appreciate you returning each week and you all giving us your continued time and your support. If you're interested in learning more, check out the sources in the episode description and enjoy the rabbit hole you'll go down. It's, it's a deep one. But if you're looking for something a little bit more exciting, like murder, you can tune in next Wednesday for episode 9, Daggers of the Sicari, where my co-hosts and I will look into a group of ancient Jewish assassins willing to do whatever necessary in opposition of Roman rule. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep your heart tag dry.